You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 18. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. If you're in the business of studying global higher education, one of the hardest habits to shake is that of assuming isomorphism. That building over there is a university, and it has departments and faculty. I went to a university with departments and faculties. I therefore know exactly what's going on in there. Except that's not really true. Universities in different countries often behave in quite different ways. There are, sometimes, some serious outliers. And no country's system is more of an outlier than that of France. France has universities, of course, but until very recently, they were arms of the state. The idea of universities as independent social and economic actors is still very new. And even more strikingly, France is one of the very few places where universities are not at the apex of the higher education system. That honor instead goes to what are known as les grandes écoles, a set of institutions so separate and elite that they have their own exclusive intake system that takes more than two years. Today, my guest is André Sursac, a higher education consultant and senior advisor to the European Universities Association. She's here to take us on a guided tour of the French higher education system and its history. But she's also with us to describe the rapid pace of reforms that have taken place in the last 20 years under Nicolas Sarkozy and Emmanuel Macron in particular. The pace of change is very fast in France these days, maybe faster than anywhere else in Europe. And that makes for a very lively episode of the World of Higher Education podcast. But enough from me, let's listen to André. André, I just want to give people a bit of historical perspective on French universities. And obviously, higher education in France has a, a long history going back eight or nine centuries. I'm not sure when the Université de Paris was founded. But in another sense, France has really only had modern universities, that is, institutions which have control over their own direction, since about 1968 and the introduction of what's known as the Loi Fort. What changed in 1968 exactly? What did universities look like before and after that year? Thank you. Yes, Alex, you're right. The, uh, the history of French university has been a long one and a contrasting one, I would say. So what the Loi Fort did was to respond to the protests of May 68 by giving more power to the university at the expense of the independent uh, faculties, the faculties in the sense of colleges and schools. Their legal status was done away with, and the idea was to break the disciplinary silos and to have multidisciplinary institutions. The law did several other things, like, for instance, change the status of academic staff to integrate research and teaching in their titles. So they, were, they are called now researchers, teachers, and they are very fond of that title. They don't want to be called teachers. The law also introduced elected representation on the boards and a few external members as well. So the difference, if you go back centuries, the first universities were founded in the 13th century, and uh, they were really institutions that had a range of responsibilities and power. The revolution closed the universities, and when Napoleon came on board and reopened, what he reopened were 33 faculties across the country. So this was the Napoleonic University. 
It went then through several phases where they were closed and reopened again. And at any rate, the most important point about the FUR law is that it allowed the university to be recreated as institutions. But it seems to me that it took universities two or three decades to come to terms with their new form and with the powers that they had. So they, they were recreating or they were as you say, they were recreating universities out of a set of independent faculties that were national and they were creating universities that were local. So although they had formally the power to act as independent strategic entities, it seems like it took them a couple of decades to start acting as though they really were. Now, is that just the generational change needed to occur or were there other forces at work, new additional laws which spurred these changes? Yes. I mean, I think it's good to remember that the Autonomy of French universities was and still is very constrained. And the state uh, released its grip on the institutions very progressively and slowly. So to give you a sense of this progression, uh, in 2007, there was a new law that was passed, which was really a very important law of autonomy for the universities. The universities were granted more autonomy to manage their budget and to and even their buildings if they wanted. Nevertheless, the universities were still under the control of the state and had to seek ex-ante accreditation for their new study programs and their new research. In 2013, a new law came in and abolished this ex-ante accreditation. But if you look at the scorecard that is established on uh, the scorecard on autonomy that is established by the European University Association that uh, France is trailing behind many of its peer institutions elsewhere in Europe. Their governance arrangement is defined by law. The management of their staff is difficult because they are mostly civil servants. Their research activities are partly dependent on very powerful research, national research organizations. The external quality assurance is very heavy. So their uh, room for maneuver is very small. And our listeners will remember that Enola Prouveau came on our show, I think last April of 2023, to talk about that scorecard. I'll come back to universities in a second, but I first want to talk about the one really unique feature of French higher education which is that it's really the only system in the world where universities are not really considered the pinnacle of the system. That honor goes instead to the grands écoles. What can you tell us about the institutions in the system and why are they considered to be at the top of the pyramid? Yes, the, the grands écoles um, were uh, initially created in the 18th century to provide the French state with uh, senior officers in the public administration, the military, and also technical expertise, engineering. École Polytechnique and the École Normale were first founded, and then they were followed by a multitude of grands écoles. Today, I think there are about 250 grounds equal, but I was just reading a publication today that mentioned 400, so who knows. There is a hierarchy within those grounds equal, but the reason that they are at the apex of the system is that because they are very competitive, entering a ground equal is a very competitive process. And once in a ground equal, the students are in a more sheltered environment with a better student-to-teacher ratio 
and they can, once they graduate, benefit from a very strong alumni network that ensures their entrance into the elite, the, the echelon in the public and the private sector. So this is why they are so valued. By contrast, the universities have to accept any holder of a baccalaureate and uh, they are much less well-funded than the universities, so the, the cost per student is much less than, than, than in the Grand Écoles. So they have to deal with a population that's weaker with uh, their hands tied behind their back, basically. So one of the ways that Grand Écoles get better students is that there's a whole stream which is devoted to getting a post-secondary but not certificate-oriented, if I can put it that, or diploma-oriented education, which acts as a funnel towards them, right? These are what they call les classes préparatoires, and that takes a couple of years of additional study after the final year yeah. of secondary school to get in. What are these classes préparatoires? How do they work across the country? Are, are there certain schools that are top, like Andover in the United States, that, that are the place to go if you want to get into ENA or, uh, or uh, you know, the, the, or one of the other top, yeah, polytelans, yes. yeah. Yeah, there is, uh, the, the, the class preparatoire lasts for two years. They are generally offered in the lycée, that's the high, the secondary high mm -hmm. schools, and they are very much organized continuation of secondary education in that the students are there all day and know they go from class to class and so on. Mm -hmm. There is a hierarchy amongst them and the best are in Paris. So it's a very competitive to get into those. And they prepare students for the entrance exam to the Grand École. And are there, does each Grand École have its own exam or are there no, streams? They, yes, they, they come together as the engineering schools, some of them will have a common exam. But depending on how well you do in this competitive exam, you will go to the most pre prestigious or less prestigious Grand École. So the whole system is geared toward producing the elite. Right. So there is an issue of stratification there. And I imagine it yes. causes quite a lot of debate in France. The idea that the Grands Écoles, very much like the Ivy League in the United States, they end up with a student body which is drawn disproportionately from the upper echelons of society. And some, and I've, I've looked at Sciences Po, they've gone quite some distance to attract minority yeah. students from underprivileged areas. But what's the real story? Does this sector generate or mitigate inequality? No, the sector really reproduces inequality. Yeah. And it starts with the class preparatoire, the, the, the makeup, the sociological makeup of their students. They come from the most privileged uh, background as well. Uh, as compared to the university students that are much more diverse in background. Sciences Po in 2001 opened the way to reaching out to marginalized groups. And since then, most Grands Écoles, I would say, have an outreach program. The issue is that it comes a bit too late in the process, in the pipeline, if you want. Mm -hmm. There is a need to have an intervention at the level of the secondary school to provide students from marginalized background with the proper information because their parents do not have that information about what's out there in terms of options. And also to support them in, in building their self-confidence that they can access mm -hmm. those schools. It's a lot of work to do that. And yeah. uh, the uh, Sciences Po works with the lycée 
but with just a small number of lycées, and that it's a huge problem. And French culture, French political culture, puts a great emphasis on equality and equity. But they also favor as individual strategies, selection and elitism, in fact. So there is a tension between those two. That is an interesting paradox. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Contact North, a not-for-profit organization supporting Ontario residents to access education and training while staying in their communities. Contact North developed a series of free generative AI-enabled apps to support teaching and learning at Canadian post-secondary institutions. With these apps, learners and faculty and instructors can get instant, reliable study and instructional support in English or French. Visit apps.contactnorth.ca for more information. And we're back. So, uh, André, let's get back to universities. It seems to me that one of the major thrusts of French higher education policy over the last couple of decades has been to encourage institutions both to compete and to collaborate. Let's start with the latter. How would you describe the various policies in encouraging regional collaboration between universities that have been put in place by uh, successive governments? I'm thinking in particular those policies that have encouraged institutional mergers in places like Strasbourg and Paris-Saclay. Why has the government been interested in this regional policy? And are there any particular initiatives that have been effective in reaching those goals? The first thing to keep in mind is that the regional cooperation started with university presidents, some university presidents, and the ministry only joined the, the movement and continued to support it. The first consortium was actually established in Grenoble, where there, there, there were three universities on one campus, and they started working together on, under an umbrella organization, and others followed suit. The ministry joined because at the same time, there was a movement to decentralize in France and the regional authorities were getting more power and more responsibilities and bigger budgets. And, and some of them started financing higher education. At any rate, the idea was to produce mini Silicon Valleys where you would have uh, neighboring institutions universities and radical working together and working with the socioeconomic partners for regional development. So this was the idea. And the consortium basically managed common doctoral schools, common research infrastructure, sometimes common international strategies or knowledge transfer strategies. Mm -hmm. And at any rate, I think that the Cooperation in the French education system is a very highly valued attitude. There is more cooperation than competition. Interesting. Back in 2003, 20 years ago now, when the Shanghai rankings first appeared, France experienced something called the, the Choc du Shanghai, which I interpret as a kind of general incredulity about how French higher education institutions appeared in international comparison. I always found this a bit odd because universities weren't necessarily set up. I know you said that the, the professors were, were proud to be researcher teachers, but so much of French scientific production is outside universities in places like the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. So why was the reaction so negative? Why was it so uh, vivid? How did it drive policy so much? 
it's interesting that you have this perception of the system because in fact, the research is happening in the universities. So if we take the example, for instance, of the largest of the research, national research organizations, which is the CNRS, the Center Southern National de la Recherche Scientifique, the, it does absolutely outstanding research. It had a budget in 2021 of 3.7 billion US dollars, over 1,000 research labs across France. But those for 97% of those research labs were shared with universities or grandes écoles. And 27% of the uh, researchers in those labs were from the CNRS. The rest came from the universities or the grandes écoles. So the, the issue really had to do with how the researchers were signing their academic publication. And there was a, a university in Lyon that tried to count in how many ways the researchers were signing and discovered that there was over 50 different ways that the researchers were signing from their own in university. So you can understand that now the lack of visibility from the Shanghai point of view, but great efforts have been expanded to make sure that now people sign with their university affiliation first. This has been a constant policy now for 10 years or, or more. And it's working. Interesting. Soon after the, the shock, though, the French government created an academic excellence initiative to help close the gap and to create a French superstar universities. And I know that's a process you were part of, and you wrote a chapter about it in, uh, in the book, Academic Star Wars. We had Phil back on the show a few weeks ago talking about that book. Yeah. How was the program structured and to what extent did it achieve its goals? Uh, yeah, the, so the program was, was, the objective of the program was to help uh, um, ensure the emergence of five to 10 universities that would be at the top of the rankings. And funding was released, 96 billion US dollars were released over a period of 13 years. The program over the years changed and expanded to embrace much more than just the top research intensive institutions. It included institutions that were specialized or more regionally oriented. And it also funded teaching and learning uh, excellence. It funded doctoral schools, uh, campus life, uh, promoted uh, better internationalization, better governance and management. So there were a lot of aspects that uh, were encompassed under on this program, and it touched a lot of universities. The uh, funding also tried to address the fragmentation that we talked about between mm -hmm. the universities and the grants they call, and between the universities and the national research organizations. Now, the impact, I think, has been huge and very positive in that it has allowed the universities, whether they were in receipt of the funding or not, to become more strategic, to sharpen their profile, to bid on, on their strengths. So better leadership, better governance, better management, more staff, more administrative staff to support what they were trying to do. All in all, it's been a very positive process. Okay. 
moving from research to, to access or teaching, over the past decade or so, it seems to me that France's problems are similar to ones that we've seen here in Canada and in many other countries, which is a growth in student numbers without a corresponding increase in government funding. I guess the difference is here in Canada, institutions can offset lack of government funding with higher fee income, either from domestic or international mm -hmm. students. That's not really possible in France. How have French universities responded to resources being spread ever more thinly? There, there was an influx of money through uh, the, the funding that I just described, mm -hmm. but also there has been an incredible growth of private operators, private providers. And this has been under the radar for a very long time, to the point where now a quarter of the French students are enrolled in private, in the private sector. And there has always been a, a private sector in France, but this private sector was regulated because it received some public funding. The private sector that has grown a lot is outside this segment and is unregulated. And the conversation right now is what to do with it and to regulate it and evaluate it because it's not happening, actually. So to protect the students with that. This is a major change in France. And so the impetus there is that students can't get into their classes of choice because the universities are too crowded. And so they go to the private sector where choice is easier. Is that what's going on? Those private institutions are aggressively branding themselves as being places where uh, students will, be, uh, will have a much more protective sort of environment, more supportive environment. Interesting. And so it is attracting students who don't know very well the system, whose parents don't know very well the system. And they even have come up now with their own parcoursup. The parcoursup uh. being the system, the national system of admission into higher education, they have now come up with their own, which is causing a lot of friction at the moment. Very interesting. I'm curious about the politics of higher education in France. Are there major differences between left and right in these, you know, on higher education? And I'm curious, um, among recent presidents, say since Chirac, which side or which presidents have been the most active on the higher education front? This is a complex question because it depends on which left and which right you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you take the center left and the center right, I think there is a, a great deal of consensus on what needs to happen in that there is a stress both on excellence and on democratization of higher education and access and making sure that the system serves all the whole population. The, the presidents that, that have been the most, uh, the most active, uh, certainly uh, Sarkozy uh, with his uh, law on autonomy, that was a big difference. It made a huge difference in France. And it also uh, established an agency for funding research and a new evaluation agency. There were all sorts of changes that happened under Sarkozy and he's the one who uh, launched the Excellence Initiative in France. The others have continued with the Excellence Initiative, so François Hollande and now Macron. Macron has made the big splash on the European level with the initiative called the European University Initiative that has had major impact at the European level in that it has created consortia of universities at the European level. Nationally, during his mandate, 
Courtship was developed and enhanced. There was a new law on more money given to research, a focus on student experience. There was a lot of stuff that happened in the first five years of Macron. And now he's talking about a new law on autonomy. So we'll see what happens. Interesting. Let me ask you one final question. What makes you optimistic about French higher education? If we were to sit down and have this interview again in in 2044, what are the successes you think we'd be talking about? I think there is a new generation of university presidents that are very strategically oriented. There is a a constant scrutiny of the sector. Mm -hmm. There is a great deal of cooperation amongst them. They try to learn from each other also. I mean, I'm talking about the universities. So when we were talking about the competitive side of the system through the excellence initiative has been mitigated, for instance, by having all the universities that were in receipt of this funding coming together and sharing good practice. So they are not competing against one another, but are trying to really raise the level of the whole system together. So those kinds of things make me optimistic. There are reasons also to be pessimistic. It's really difficult to change higher education. You were interviewing last week, I think it was, the author of whatever it is, I'm against. I'm against it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So there is a bit of that here, of course. And the resistance to change, resistance to excellence from some some segments of the the Mm -hmm. university communities. So there are, it's not going to be easy. André, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Alex. And it just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Tiffany McClendon and Sam Pufek. And of course, you, our listeners, for joining us. If you have any comments or questions about the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be a complete mystery. I'm serious. We've had some unexpected production histories and we genuinely don't know who we'll be bringing you next week but i promise you it will be fun bye for now the world of higher education podcast is a higher education strategy associates production produced by tiffany mclennan and samantha pufek hosted by alex usher music by t bless and the professionals Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 